Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the show where we collectively try to untangle the colossal clusterfuck that is politics, news, and social justice in the year 2016. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. Coming up on the show today, MTV political writer Jamie Fuller talks to author Maura Weigel about how the history of dating mirrors the way we discuss women. Also ahead, a shallow dive with the conspiracy theorist who ran for the Texas State Board of Education, and Marcus Ellsworth's belief in the power of people. But first, senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox kicks off a new segment series with the MTV News debut of Some of My Best Friends. Let's get to it. Longtime followers of Anna's work will be familiar with the premise of this segment. For those of you new to the series, we'll let her lay out the ground rules. Welcome to Some of My Best Friends. It's a segment intended to explore the relationships that cross ideological, demographic, theological, and philosophical lines. It's not necessarily about changing people's minds, although part of me hope that happens. But I'm not interested in converting people and I don't want to be converted. But I do want to figure out what personal relationships can do for politics. Can civil conversations be more productive than antagonistic ones? Where are the lines that can't be crossed, the deal breakers, the things that someone believes that no matter how nice or genial, how charming he or she is, you cannot be friends? If we care about creating a compromise in order to salvage a friendship, are we going to do harm to the beliefs and ideals we started arguing about in the first place? Anna's first guest is Republican strategist Rick Wilson, a guy who she doesn't see eye to eye with on much, except when it comes to the current GOP frontrunner for president. So it's been almost a month that Trump has become the de facto nominee for the party. And we're already seeing some mainstream Republicans kind of fall into line. Sure. How are you feeling? Here's the thing. I, I, I would be disappointed that you know, people are behaving like ordinary humans, which is to say they are fearful, they are herd-driven, they are morally compromised, but uh, I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I fully expected you would find a lot of folks in D.C. who publicly for months have been saying, this is the worst guy in the world, um, now flipping and, uh, and, and jumping on board in hopes of some benefit out of it. I mean, there are an awful lot more uh, I'm heartened to say, who are, especially ones running for re-election this year, who are making very polite mouth noises about Trump, but otherwise staying the hell away from him. So let's be very clear, though. Like, I think a lot of the never Trump movement seemed a little bit sort of based just on practicality, like what a drag he'd be on the ticket um, and how kind of just uh, distasteful he is to have as a nominee. Um, but I am wondering, like, the more it looks like he might have a chance, I mean, there was this poll that just came out, you know, that had him basically tied. Do you think that people are going to lose their will to oppose him? I mean, how much of the never Trump opposition is based on the recognition that he's an actual bad candidate, not just like an inconvenient candidate, but that someone that would do harm to the republic? (laughs) I think the core of Never Trump has been based on a principled philosophical rejection of Trump's belief system, and, or what, such as it is, and his temperamental unsuitability to be president. So uh, most of it's based on that, but there is a definite um, factor here of, of Trump's 
um, you know, difficulties he brings the ticket, the, the problems he brings Republican candidates up and down the line. Um, and the fact of the matter is that his negatives start up so high. And the Clinton folks are going to have resources that he will not have. He has nothing in the bank. They have, they have $2 million in the bank. Hillary has like $70 million in the bank right now. She's going to have an unlimited amount of resources. And they're starting right now, um, digital and television, pounding Donald Trump's head in. And it's going to keep going, and it's going to keep going. And Trump will not have the resources to counteract that because he, he simply won't. The, the, the donor community in the Republican Party isn't going to do it. You know, a lot of the donors feel like that Trump would be a, a much greater danger to conservatism and to the party over over time than than they could possibly they could possibly face under Hillary. I mean, there's an argument that I've made that in fact Hillary unifies the Republican Party very quickly. Even if Trump wins the presidency, he divides the party um, essentially for a generation. Um, but if Hillary's the president, I think she would unify the party more effectively and more quickly than almost anything else I could conceive of. You have laid out, you know, the conservative case against Trump. And I, I, I hear that case and I believe it. And I, to the extent that I can agree with it, you know, if I were a conservative, I think I would be opposed to Trump. So what's interesting to me is what this moment offers, though, for the potential for any kind of crossover or conversation among people who normally might not agree. And I wonder, do you think that's possible? I mean, you're, you are, you're never Trump and you're also obviously convincingly and sincerely anti-Hillary. Is there any way that you can work together with, with someone on a democratic side on this? You know, it's a very difficult situation right now because there are a lot of Democrats who are very dissatisfied with Hillary Clinton. And, and, and I, I, I joke lately, you know, we don't just need a third party right now. I think we kind of need a third and a fourth party. <laughs> you know, right now, partisanship and ideology are conflated completely, mm -hmm. okay? So if you're a Republican, you are a conservative. But right now, we're seeing the conservative movement split in twain, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the liberal movement sort of split in twain between progressives and technocrats. Mm -hmm. And with Republicans, it's between constitutionalists and libertarians and authoritarian statists. So it's we're in a really we're in a really odd spot historically. It's it's very much a it's very much a a, a a unique moment, you know, fraught with peril. But I hope at some point with some opportunity as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm seeing is what what I, I'm seeing is that this, these splits are happening. Like more uh, more obvious than ever is the progressive versus technocrat, libertarian versus authoritarian. And which makes for a very complicated uh, ideological landscape, which is what a real ideological landscape is. Right now, we have a basically one-dimensional ideological landscape, right? Correct. And I think the problem with this being a crisis election means that we're just going to have to make sure the republic survives. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 favor, I favor that, actually. <laughs> Now, okay, so what's the project? What is the Never Trump project? If you can be fairly confident that Hillary is going to win, like what is your personal project for this election? Well, look, my personal project is to save both the Republican Party and the conservative movement from being saddled with Trumpism. All these folks, all these Trump people who think that they've created some new politics, well, they haven't. And they, they have this fantasy-based version, version of politics where they think, Oh, now it's Donald Trump. All the rules don't apply anymore. He can say and do anything he wants. Nothing matters. Uh, you can't touch the Trump. You can't stump the Trump. Uh, I, there's a part of me, uh, as a political professional and as a guy who does this for a living, 
just uh, that I'm looking forward to watching the collision uh, with reality they're going to have because they think that the rules don't apply anymore. And the rules are like physics, and they always apply. They're universal constants in politics. Things like don't drive away entire huge growing ethnic groups. Don't drive away all the women voters. Don't drive away anybody with a college degree. Don't act like you're. Don't act like you are. You are going to run a punitive, vindictive, um, you know, petty junior high level uh, dialogue as president of the United States of America. That was MTV senior political correspondent Anna Marie Cox in conversation with Republican strategist Rick Wilson. Up until the beginning of the 20th century, the human mating dance was pretty straightforward. Men called on eligible women under the supervision of their families, some livestock would get swapped, and the ultimate intent was always marriage. Nowadays, not so much. Dating is, are you talking? Are you hanging out? Is it complicated? Yes, Facebook, it's fucking complicated. Author Maura Weigel wrote a book about the history of courtship called Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. MTV political writer Jamie Fuller invited Weigel to our New York studio, where they explored how the way we date is and has been tied to economics all along. So as is obvious from the title of your book, which is Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, uh, your book is looking at the history of dating and how it has piggybacked on economic trends. Yeah. And at the beginning... Uh, it's a very working class thing as people are trying to figure out how to find people when they don't get to have calling cards. Right, exactly. And how does that change over time? So the history of dating maps very directly onto the history of women entering the workforce, which I maybe seems uh, obvious once you realize it, but I had never even thought about before I started looking into it. And um, so it starts with working class women because these are the first women who are working outside the home mm -hmm. and have you know both the freedom and the pressure to find mates on their own because they don't have Jane Austen style moms and aunts and folks inviting callers over to their parlor. So it's really a working class history from about, I'd say, roughly the 1890s to World War One, mm -hmm. And after World War One, as you get this influx of more and more relatively privileged, what we would now call privileged women, into colleges, uh, you start to see it become not so much a middle class as like an upper middle class phenomenon. And that's where I think of like the F. Scott Fitzgerald, this side of paradise, Great Gatsby kind of version of dating where it's mostly pretty wealthy people mm -hmm. imitating what had started out as a working class phenomenon. And then it's really, it gradually becomes more middle class. I think of, you know, the golden years around World War II or after World War II, these years of great American prosperity is when it becomes the middle class institution that I think when we now lament the death of dating or the death of traditional dating, like it's that Eisenhower era, Norman Rockwell soda fountain kind of image that people have in mind. So that's the first part of the history. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to today, there's this entire class system of dating again. Right. <laughs> I was wondering if you could like go through how much you knew that existed before you started researching that project. Yeah, I didn't really know that at all before I started researching the project. I mean, the initial impetus behind the project was 
depending how you want to tell it, that I was a frustrated single person or that I was, you know, a scholar interested in history. But I was reading all these trends pieces and articles that say things like dating is dead. And then they'd say, what, by, what does that mean? That means nobody goes out on a date anymore. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, there's a certain circularity in this definition. And what, I mean, you know, as someone who's trained to be suspicious and also someone um who hoped that romance and courtship were not utterly over, you know, that it wasn't the sort of end of men, end of sex, end of mm-hmm. everything moment that all the trans pieces seemed to be saying. I wanted to look into that. And then what I learned, which once I learned it seemed quite obvious in a way, was that the history of dating is the history of women entering public space and the history of women entering the paid workforce. And before that, for middle class people or wealthy people, courtship protocols really involve a man coming and calling on you. Uh, For less wealthy people, it might be a factory dance or a church social, Um, a matchmaker might introduce you, but it's still supervised by adults and takes place in these private or semi-private spaces that are not commercial spaces. And once women start, well, once young people of all genders start coming to cities and working in large numbers, and then once more and more women, and especially young unmarried women, start working at you know, factories or as sales girls or as waitresses out in public, you start to see this practice of dating emerge. And it has everything to do with both their new freedom to go around and meet who they like when they like, and also economic necessity, because then as now, then more than now, mm-hmm. women are systematically paid far less than men. And you see interview after interview where they say, you know, if men didn't treat me to dinner, I could never afford a hot meal. So it really does come out of, in a way, you know, there's always this tension between the sort of fun and pleasure and excitement of it. You know, imagine if you'd been in that Jane Austen scenario and then all of a sudden you could meet hundreds of dudes every day. That would be very exciting if you were a straight (laughs) woman. Um, But then also this necessity and certain kinds of economic pressures. And I think we see those sort of inextricable tensions of that back and forth to this day, where, as you say, dating has gotten class stratified in new ways. And anyway, there are new issues today, too. But I think that 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 fundamental original aspect of it persists. Mm-hmm. And you kind of uh, insinuate when you're talking about now that not only are women still working as much at dating, if not more than they were, there's also all these other realms of work where they're also working more than other people. And there's this one quote uh, that I, your book really made me think of that Donald Trump um, is quoted saying in that New York Times article about his Try treatment not of to scream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's describing why he's a champion of women and cites his uh, longtime practices of hiring women. And his reasoning for why uh, he hires lots of women is it would just seem that there was something that they wanted to really prove. Yeah, I mean, I think there was this sense to speak in very broad strokes in the 60s and 70s with a certain kind of college-educated, upper-middle-class white feminism, that it's like, if we just get a few women at the table, if we work so hard, and frankly, I mean, Hillary Clinton embodies this model of Mm -hmm. feminism, if we just work hard enough and put up with enough bullshit and get a space at the boys' table, then everything will get better. And I see what's happening in, like, what I would call, like, the new American feminism, uh, a certain conversation that's happening now uh, as rejecting, as showing all of everything that's wrong with this kind of corporate and commercialized feminism and how it doesn't work, I read the rejection of Hillary by millennial women as a reflection that it's like, oh, well, there's this turning point where the culture is actually realizing that model actually doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But I think the quote of Donald Trump that you brought up 
is exactly sort of the other side of that equation exploiting, you know, it's exploiting this tendency that, you know, if you're that ambitious women feel that they have to just work to be like a man, you know, if you could just cure yourself of this terrible disability of being a female, maybe you could have uh, the same kinds of opportunities. So that quote, to me, gets at everything that's wrong and everything that has failed women about that model of feminism, which I would trace from like, Helen Crowley Brown in some ways to to Sheryl Sandberg. It's Mm -hmm. like, I joke now that even our love songs are like Britney Spears singing You Better Work Bitch or like now Rihanna is like work, 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 work. And it's like, when did this happen? Mm -hmm. When did this become, um, you know, when is is this cult of work any better actually than I'm a slave for you? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think everyone's trying to come to terms with this right now. And there's going to be some point where everyone just accepts um, hookup culture is yeah. like what we do is dating and it's not this avant-garde thing that is uh, a signal of the end of something else and but what comes after that what always strikes me about the conversation about hookup culture is that it's all about work mm-hmm. and that i think often the sort of you know there's the moral panic camp that says this is so terrible young women are having sex although in fact they're having less sex than kids in college in the 80s and 90s were So, you know, there's this sort of panic camp and explicitly, I'd say, anti-feminist camp that says, oh, young women, you are giving it away for free. This is terrible for you. Then there's the ostensibly feminist camp that says, oh, this is great. You can just have casual sex. You can focus on work all the time. And Mm -hmm. I think of that essay, Hearts of Steel, that Hannah Rosen wrote, and I admire her in a lot of ways, but that essay to me sort of typifies this ostensibly feminist attitude that says hookup culture is good because you don't have to waste any time on feelings or your personal life. You can just work. And it strikes me when I read the actual interviews that are cited of like participants in hookup culture that it's always about feelings and not wanting to experience feelings and feelings being a waste and how you just want to sort of optimize your sex life. Mm-hmm. And to me... Efficiency comes up so much when you talk about dating Yeah, apps. which is so in it because I'm like, efficiency, well, for what? Like, what is the goal towards which you're trying to be efficient? And what's quite striking to me reading descriptions of either sort of like Tinder or campus hookup culture or whatever is that... What seems sad about it to me is neither that people are having too much sex or not. It's like that they think that having feelings or sexual pleasure would be a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And that seems sad to me. Maybe that makes me old fashioned. I mean, everyone, the heart wants what it wants. People should do what they want. I don't mean to be moralizing. But what's striking to me is it seems so much more about the total colonization of life by work. Like the fact is now that dating very much mirrors uh, income inequality. and where it was once a way of maybe changing uh, your financial future or right. what class you were in um, with the shop girls that you mentioned at the beginning of the mm-hmm. book and whatnot. Uh, now you just have a assorted of mating where mm-hmm. people just keep getting richer and richer. I think uh, there was this New York Times op-ed from a while ago and they said in 2007, an article in the New York Times cited 13 up-and-coming uh, economists, most of whom have gone on to greater fame. The striking fact is that six of these individuals are married to each other, wow. and yeah. that was not the premise of the article. And right. <laughs> and this is happening everywhere. And right. like we, we've left behind the people who invented dating. Yeah. Well, I think it's tricky because it's so embedded in this, like, vast and growing income inequality in America in any case, I think that 
you know, when you have the great opportunity for privileged women in the 70s and 80s to sort of break into the corporate ranks or to go into these higher paid jobs that had traditionally been reserved for men, you see the rise of this assortative mating trend, whereas previously a lawyer might have married his secretary or a doctor might have married his nurse. Now there are two doctors and they both went to the same schools and know the same people. And so it's not and it, it's not that hard to understand why that would happen, that people of similar backgrounds might be more inclined to pair off together. It does reinforce this pattern of income inequality, and that's a tricky thing, um, I think, for feminists to reckon with. And I'm not sure exactly what you know the answer is to that, but it certainly is true that we're seeing this vast skewing in you know dating, courtship, marriage cultures in the United States, where on the upper end of the spectrum, um, both dating and marriage are becoming sort of luxury goods in a mm-hmm. way. Sociologists talk about this idea of the capstone marriage rather than the cornerstone marriage yeah. now, which is like a reflection that you've gotten your whole life together. And then on the other end of the income spectrum, you have this end of men problem where men who, you know, a generation or two ago would have had steady union jobs don't have them. They don't see many economic opportunities. Uh, women are opting out of you know, well, everyone, I guess, is opting out of marriage. You're seeing more childbirth out of marriage, which I don't necessarily think is a problem, but it certainly does change the culture and norms around courtship. Throughout this book, uh, it's it's clear that these problems that have existed since the beginning of dating mm-hmm. haven't gone away and just have gotten more and more ingrained over time, even as we... Uh, go through new economic yeah. and dating trends. And I do think some things are getting better. Like, I do think, for instance, like... I think there. it's not just that everything gets worse and worse all the time. Oh, yeah, I hope yeah. it doesn't come off that way. It doesn't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And there, there's definitely, uh, like, having agency uh, is yeah. nice. Um, and th- there's all these great things. But, like, there, there's still things that you want to get better that right. never do. And your book doesn't have any uh, prescriptions for <laughs> how to fix anything. And you, you never... I, do, I do occasionally. People are like, so how do we fix capitalism? <laughs> and I'm like, wait, stay tuned for the next book. I'll cover it there. Um, I, I was wondering if you ever thought about what an ideal uh, dating industry uh, would be if you could just change one or two things. The long-term goal is like communist matriarchy. I'm joking. <laughs> like the short-term goal. No, I think that Misandry. it's... Yeah, right. Oh, no, it's true. Someone asked me at a reading the other night, is there hope for heterosexuality? And I was like, oh, I hope so. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think that, look, the law... I personally believe that certain structural changes would be necessary to ensure true gender equality. And the kinds of changes I'm talking about concern paid leave, child care, student debt. I mean, there are a lot of big issues that I think become burdensome on young people and women in particular that could be addressed through changes in social policy. So that's sort of the large scale goal. I think in the more immediate in the more immediate future or sort of the more for an individual reader, what I'm hoping to do is shed some light or bring some clarity to these issues that I think the lack of clarity, at least for me, maybe just because I'm a huge nerd, but for me, like the lack of clarity about the sort of background or foundation of all this advice and anxiety that we're bombarded with all the time made it really hard for me to discern what I would want Mm -hmm. in my life. And I think that I mean, 
I think that it's like if the book helps women stop hating themselves a little bit or like hate themselves just a little bit less, like that's a good goal for me. It's like if it gets us communist matriarchy, great. But I think that there's so many pressures and forces that just because they've not been examined or elucidated can make this area really hard to navigate. And I don't know, I guess this is old fashioned in a way, but I do think that distance and clarity and better understanding of the forces at work in our individual lives can lead us to be happier and freer, even if it doesn't immediately change the underlying social conditions. There was this uh, one sentence that just uh, not only had something to do with politics, but there was just so much to unpack in it that I just wanted to read it out loud. Uh And it's about one of our founding fathers. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin reminisces about how the parents of his first marriage prospect encouraged him to fool around with his daughter, which (laughs) is not something I ever wanted to learn about Benjamin Franklin, but I'm also glad that I know and you can just learn lots of other things uh, like that from reading your book. And everyone should read it because it's a really fun read. The past is more perverted than we think. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That was MTV political writer Jamie Fuller in conversation with author Maura Weigel about her new book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. You're listening to The Stakes. We'll be right back. Even though it was a busy week for Jamie, she still found time to knock out my favorite assignment, briefing deputy political editor Julianne Ross on the week's squirreliest news, the kind of electoral developments we want to hear more about. This week, the conspiracy-laced race for the Texas State Board of Education. So Jamie, what is happening in the political world this week? Down in Texas this week, there was a runoff election on Tuesday. And we're talking on Tuesday, so the listeners know more about this at this point than we do. (laughs) But there's this little State Board of Education race that's been getting a lot of attention. Why? Because of the person who looks like she's going to win because she came very close to winning in the primary. Uh, Her name's Mary Lou Brunner, and she's running for the District 9 seat on the State Board of Education, which is in Northeast Texas. And the people on this board get to decide what ends up in textbooks. But she got attention because of her Facebook posts, which I feel oh like... Facebook is, and politicians. Is not a good downfall combination. of so many local politicians nowadays. Just don't do it. But uh, here are some of the things that she has said uh, in the past. President Obama has a soft spot for homosexuals because of the years he spent as a male prostitute in his 20s. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is how he paid for his drugs. Oh, my God. That just kept getting worse and worse. I was like, oh, this is really bad. And then you were like, just just kept going. Oh, my God. And then some of her other ideas, uh, she thinks the Democratic Party killed JFK. She thinks that Paul Ryan looks like a terrorist when he has a beard. Um, Like many other uh, Republicans, she thinks that climate change is a hoax. That's like the least crazy thing on this uh, list. (laughs) She thinks it was Karl Marx's idea. Okay. (laughs) Never Um, mind. I I, I take it back. (laughs) uh, She also thinks that the dinosaurs died because they were only babies when they were on Noah's Ark and they couldn't reproduce and there was no food for them after the flood. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I got to say. And she's also against Common Core. So (laughs) I think that provides a pretty good overview of what she believes. And this is a woman who would like have say in the Texas curricula. Yes. Like across the state. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And Texas, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're the ones who the school board sometime last year, like, vetoed a plan or shot down a plan to fact check textbooks, right? That sounds uh, like very familiar. Texas uh, has gotten a lot of attention over the years for uh, how they treat textbooks. Well, there was Um, like that that image that went viral where um, like a mother tweeted it from her son's textbook where it called slaves like workers and immigrants. mm -hmm. Um, And the school board was like, no, we're we're still not going to fact check. If I remember correctly, she wasn't on it at the time. No, right? no, no. Okay. she is aspiring, um, but she will fit right in. It seems. <laughs> she was asked about her Facebook post and why she would post such things in the first place, and her answer was, "Well, I didn't know I was going to run when I posted those things." And she has also said that I'm not ashamed of anything that I've ever said. If I'm on the state board of education, I'm going to speak up for the things I believe because I have a First Amendment right. But um, since then, she had a meeting with superintendents across the state who were live fact-checking her, and it's kind of... So they are not happy about this, I would assume. No, no, And she would say something, and they'd be like, no, 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 and then she'd say, I'm I'm sorry, like, I'll look into that, and it just kept getting louder. And there was one point where she said that she met with a superintendent, and the superintendent stood up and was like, I'm that superintendent. I've never met with you. So... (laughs) <laughs> Wait, why are people voting for her? Why is she doing so well? It's it's a very conservative part of the state. Um, there's lots of people who probably agree with yeah. her. So this isn't surprising. But <laughs> to say the least, it's been a very interesting election, and we'll see what happens. And whoever wins this runoff, since we know it's a very conservative part of the state, is going to win in November. The Democratic candidate has no chance. So it's either going to be Mary Lou Brunner or... Uh, this other person who's hasn't got quite as much attention because is the other person also like saying all these crazy things? He's conservative, um, but he he definitely does not agree with things on a Mary Lou Brunner scale. Well, my thoughts and prayers are going out to Texas <laughs> and the school board runoff right now. Then, well, we'll see what happens. You just heard MTV political writer Jamie Fuller and deputy political editor Julianne Ross. Oh, and since this segment was recorded, we have received word of the verdict and Mary Lou Bruner didn't win. We're going to close things out this week with another visit from our very own poet-in-residence, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth. This week, for a change, he shares his faith in humanity. I've given up on fairy tales. Those stories of old that we were all sold telling us to only believe and in time we'd receive the promise of a just and good world. But no president will ever be Santa Claus giving gifts of freedom just because. And yes, they've rigged the system. Their tricks are old, you just missed them. When they faked left and moved right for all things straight cis male and white. Not to forget about the wealthy too, gonna keep their money no matter what you do. The change we need won't come from on high. It comes from the prophecy of you and I becoming we, becoming free. I believe in the power of the people. I believe knights in shining armor can wait. In the end, they're only agents of the state. I believe damsels can devour dragons whole when they decide to take control because these are things that I have seen while benevolent rulers remain a dream. I believe in the power of the people. 
I believe in the generations that can stand tall because the first brick was thrown at Stonewall. I believe in the ways we were shown by marching millions deciding to own their freedom, their power, their glory, declaring oppression was not their story. I believe in the power of the people. I believe in the women who forge hammers to smash through patriarchy's dark glamour. I believe in the power of countless genders, what language forgets the soul remembers, like the first time you felt the touch of rain and knew the sunshine was yours to claim. I believe in the power of the people. I believe that we will win. I believe in you. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.